Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and I will be your new host for the Unity in Christ program. I am very excited to be sharing God's Word and growing in faith with all of you. I hope that all of you can pray for me so that God gives me the strength and wisdom to do His work through this program. As we go into the month of October, there will be some changes in our English Unity in Christ program. A new program titled, Questions from the Bible, will be starting. This new program will study various questions in their different forms from the Bible to understand the spiritual meaning behind them in God's thoughts. Please stay tuned for this new program. Unbelievers like to mention certain biblical figures to challenge the church. Two of them are Ananias and Sapphira. I have met several unbelievers who discussed how Ananias and Sapphira were put to death because they stole a portion of the tithe that should have been given to God. Surprisingly, even believers misunderstand the circumstances behind the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Furthermore, I have heard sermons on this misunderstanding of their death. But did Ananias and Sapphira really die because they stole the offering? Let's discuss their story in this misunderstanding. Their story begins in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. If we skim through this passage, it really does seem like they died because they did not tithe the full amount of the price they received from selling the land. But when we look at Peter's question to Ananias, the problem is not that they did not offer the full amount of the land. Peter asked him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? What does this mean? No one forced Ananias to sell his land to give it as an offering. Ananias had no reason to offer it in the first place. The land belonged to Ananias, and the money that he acquired from selling the land also belonged to him. No one asked him for it. Then what was the problem? The problem was the fact that Ananias lied to the apostles to make them believe that he was offering the full price he received from selling the land. If he had told the apostles that he had appropriated a portion of the sale to share with the believers, he would have been commended. And yet, he pretended that he offered the full amount of profits from the land sale. The apostle Peter told him that he did not deceive man, but God, the Holy Spirit. The reason Ananias died was not because he kept the offering, but because he tried to deceive God.
After Ananias died, young men took his body out to bury him. Soon after, his wife, Sapphira, came out and lied to Peter in the same manner as her husband. This is from Acts chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Sapphira 
also died because she tested the Holy Spirit. Why did the Bible record the death and lies of Ananias and Sapphira? What does it want to tell us? Clearly, the message is not to teach us that we will die if we steal an offering, because that is not the reason they died. They died because they deceived and tested the Holy Spirit and lied to God. And we are to give special attention to this. Many say we live in an era of grace. Of course, this saying is correct. This is not an era of law in which we become righteous by keeping the law, but an era of grace that we became righteous through the blood and the grace of Christ. And there are some believers who mistake this era of grace to be free to sin. They misinterpret this given grace to continue to live in their sin. Furthermore, they say that the sin that has been committed is not sin, but through the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see God's judgment on sin within the church. Ananias and Sapphira were not secular people who did not know Jesus Christ. They were members of the early church. But what happened to them? What happened to the members of the early church who knew Jesus Christ? Apostle Peter used this expression. But Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? What happens when an individual accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior? Yes, the individual receives the promised Holy Spirit. Then what should the individual do after receiving the promised Holy Spirit? He or she who receives the Holy Spirit must then live filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet Ananias and Sapphira were not filled with the Holy Spirit, but filled with Satan. Their hearts were with Satan. Oh, the eye approached 
Coming up next is Sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Lord of the Storm, based on Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. I hope you all have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. We've been looking at the book of Mark, which is the first of all, it's the oldest of all accounts we have, written accounts we have of who the historical Jesus really was. And so we're looking to see who he really was, and that gives you an ability to kind of sift through what you hear. Now, tonight we get to this short little incident, and it's all about the power of Jesus. But it tells us four things about his power. It tells us he has real-world power. He has infinite power. He has unmanageable power. And he's got costly power, power that's costly, more to him than anyone. He's got real-world power, infinite power. He's got unmanageable power and costly power. Let's take a look. First of all, what I call real-world power. What do we mean by that? Well, take, if you take a look at the beginning of this, it's a short little passage, but it's packed with little details, packed with details. So, for example, we're told uh, that this happened in the evening, verse 35. Next, we're told that Jesus got into this boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, but he got in this boat. Notice what it says in verse 36, just as he was. What does that mean, just as he was? And this is actually a reference back to the beginning of the chapter, which, of course, has been four weeks ago. Even if you were here every week, it's, you wouldn't remember. But in the beginning of the chapter, four, uh, Jesus, in order to address this huge crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, got into a boat and let the boat go just offshore. So he spoke from a boat just offshore to the people on the shore. What is this verse saying? It's saying that Jesus got from that boat into this boat without going back ashore to get anything. They took him just as he was. He didn't go back to shore, so he switched from one boat to another boat. We're also told that when he first started out across the Sea of Galilee, there were a whole bunch of other little boats around him. That's also in verse 36. And then we're told he went to sleep on a cushion, not just to sleep, but on a cushion. And then on top of that, we're told it was in the stern, which for us landlubbers, that means the back part of the boat. Uh, now, what's the significance of all that? It's very significant. I was reading, one of the commentaries I was reading was by a, a, a major scholar at Cambridge University, a major a historical scholar, and she said in the book that she would be prone to believe that this was a legend, considering all that happened, except for the details. And what she meant by that is, Look at the details. Why would you, if you're writing up a legend, why would you write down that uh, there are all those other little boats around him when they actually, it, that doesn't contribute a thing to the story. It doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't move the story along. There's no meaning involved. It, it's just there, and then they're never brought up again. And why does it tell us that Jesus didn't go back to shore before he got into the other boat? Why these details? They don't help the story. They don't tell us anything about the story. And the answer is, these are the memories of somebody. The only reason that these details would be here is if somebody remembered them. They're they're eyewitness, firsthand memory. They're there only because somebody remembered that it was true. That's the way it was. Because back in those days, unlike today, when we can write fiction, sometimes we write fiction and we put little uh, details in it just to make it realistic, that's not the way legends were written back then at all. And so the conclusion is this, this has to be eyewitness reporting. 
This isn't a legend. It's not written like a legend. It couldn't be a legend. There's no other reason for these details to be in here unless they actually happen. Why is it important to say that? In New York, I think the average smart New Yorker deals with the claims of Christianity like this. They say, look, we don't have the original Jesus. We really don't know what the original Jesus was like. All we know is that many years later, the, the, the church came up with these legends and put forth the Jesus they wanted, the church wanted us to believe, but we really don't know who the real Jesus is. We just have these legends that came along much later. The only problem with that theory is the gospel accounts just don't fit into that theory at all. The Bible gospels were written way too early to be legends. They were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, but most important, they're too detailed to be legends. Either these are reports, eyewitness reports, or Mark, 2,000 years ago, without any successors or predecessors, suddenly anticipated modern, narrative, realistic fiction, and then stopped. Nobody else followed him up. In other words, 2,000 years ago, no predecessors, no successors. Suddenly, he starts writing the way we write fiction today. It never happened before. It never happened again for 2,000 years. Did you think that happened? Either this is eyewitness reporting or that happened. That didn't happen. So this is eyewitness reporting. And what that means is everything. This really happened. The power of Jesus is not just the power that comes to you internally when you read an inspiring story. This is power that happened in the real world, in real time, in real history. Why does that matter? People still, I hear all the time, say, well, I'd like to be a Christian, but I got problems because some of the things Jesus says I like, but some I don't. And some of the things the Bible teaches I like, but some of them I don't. Now wait, wait. Either Jesus was not raised from the dead in real time and real space and real history. Either Jesus was not really raised from the dead. It didn't really happen. And you can believe whatever you want. You know, why are you struggling? Just believe what you want. Or he was proven to be the Son of God because he was raised from the dead. And this power happened in real time, in real history. It really happened. And if that's the case, then why are you saying, well, I like this that he says, I don't like this that he says, so what, whether you like it or not? Who cares? If, he, if this actually happened, then you have to deal with him as he is. There's no negotiation. That's remarkable. This is real power in real time. And if, as I think the purpose of this passage is supposed to, if we're supposed to learn to trust Jesus in the storms of our life, which I think is the purpose of the passage, if we're supposed to trust Jesus in the storms of our life, we need to know this really happened. He really did this. So first, it's real-time power. Secondly, Jesus' power is infinite. The last of the three questions in this passage is, who is this? And the answer is someone who's got virtually infinite power. The Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. Just 30 miles to the north, Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. So believe it, so within 30 miles, you've got 10,000 foot high down to below sea level. And what that means is you've got constant uh, <laughs> clashing of the cold weather, the cold air from the mountains, the warm air coming up from the Sea of Galilee, and as a result, the Sea of Galilee was a place with lots of storms, lots of squalls, lots of thunder boomers, lots of uh, storms. And of course, anyone who, who was 
any fishermen like these, uh, the disciples who were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they certainly were used to them. But this must have been an incredible storm because experienced sailors they were. They thought they were going to die. They don't say, do they, down here, uh, Master, we might die. <laughs> Master, we are dying. We are drowning. It's happening. It must have been an incredible storm. And Jesus wakes up and does two things that are just amazing. The first is the astonishing simplicity of what he says. We'll get back to this in just a second. But notice he doesn't get up, roll up his sleeves, stand back. You see, you know, he doesn't get his wand. And there's no incantations, no in the name of, no. Very, very simple. Two verbs, the second of which is actually kind of unusual. It's sort of present progressive imperative. Here's what he says. Be quiet and stay quiet. That's it. To a hurricane. This is how you talk to a child, you know. Sit down and stay there, you know. Be quiet and stay quiet. That's how you talk to a child. Jesus takes a hurricane and simply says, be quiet and stay quiet. That's the first astonishing thing. The second astonishing thing is it did. Like a child. Like that. Because notice if you read real carefully, it says, he rebuked the wind, said to the waves, quiet, be still, be quiet, and stay quiet. And the wind died down, but that's not all. And it was completely calm. And it sounds like redundancy unless you realize he's talking about the wind. It's talking about the wind and the sea. Because the second phrase where it says completely calm is actually, literally, it's the word mega calm. Mega calm. And it's the word for dead calm. And it's talking about what happens. Well, not what happens. Have you ever seen a dead calm? Have you ever seen water that was smooth as glass, no waves at all? at all. Smooth as glass. You almost see your face in it. Do you know what happened? Jesus said, be quiet and stay quiet. And the first thing we see, of course, is that the wind stopped. But that could have been a coincidence. If you've ever been on the ocean, you know, or if you've vacationed or lived on the shore, you know that even when the wind stops, even when the storm goes away, the waves keep pounding for hours and days afterwards, do they not? But when Jesus said, be quiet and stay quiet, not only did the wind suddenly die down, that could have been a coincidence, right? But the ocean, the waves suddenly went dead calm. So here's Jesus, hurricane, wind, roaring, waves, pounding. Be quiet and stay quiet. And suddenly, everything stopped. This is incomparable power. And the reason it's incomparable is if there's one thing that all the ancient cultures believed together, if there was one consensus point amongst all ancient cultures, was that the sea was uncontrollable to any power but God. The sea was the ultimate symbol in ancient cultures and legends and literature of uncontrollable destruction. The ocean at full fury was uncontrollable, inexorable power. And only God could control the sea. So you, it's across all the cultures. So, for example, remember, remember the story of King Canute, the uh, Danish king in the 11th century? And he thought people were actually, his you know, fawning courtiers were, were giving him divine accolades. And he just said, if, am I divine? He walks up to the sea and says, stop. And, of course, the ocean kept coming. And what's he saying? He says, only God can stop the sea. I couldn't stop the sea. I'm not God. In 2 Maccabees, which is one of those uh, writings that we have in what's called the Apocrypha, uh, it's writings about what happened in Israel between the Old and New Testament, there's a very interesting passage in 2 Maccabees chapter 9 
where uh, it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian dictator who was a, a, quite an evil man and a tyrant, and he invaded and oppressed the, uh, uh, Israel. But at some point, Antiochus Epiphanes said that he had the power to calm the waves. And all of the Jewish rabbis and all the teachers and the prophets got together and said, blasphemy. That's, that's, just, that's not just overreaching. That's blasphemy because only God can control the waves. And here's Jesus exercising the power that only God has. Total consensus. Only God has this power, and here's Jesus exercising it. And you realize, let's go back to this. Jesus does not conjure. He does not call on a higher power. Like everyone else who ever does any of these things, if you read any of the miracle stories, the great healing stories, any of the stories and legends, they always call on a higher power. See? They say, in the name of this or in the name of that, I say unto the... Jesus says, sit down and shut up to a hurricane. And do you know what he's saying? Do you know what it's saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not calling on a higher power because I am the higher power. I am not someone who has power. I am power himself. I am power himself. And anyone and anything in the whole universe that has any power has it on loan from me. That is an amazing claim. And you know, that pushes you to the brink. See, this happened. The disciples remembered it happening. This has got all the earmarks of eyewitness reporting. But if that happened, who is this? And what does this mean for us? There's really only two options, you know. You know who put it incredibly well is a character in Flannery O'Connor's great and shocking short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. If anybody says, oh, uh, I ought to read that and picks it up this week to read it, you're going to say, it's going to be so shocking. It, it, by the way, don't, this is not inspirational literature if you ever read it. And the main character, there's two main characters, the grandmother and the misfit. And the misfit basically says a lot of very interesting things during the uh, uh, short story while he's murdering people one after the other. And at one point, the misfit basically puts it like this. He's absolutely right. He says, Jesus has thrown everything off out of whack. And he seems, the misfit says, look, either this world is just the result of a storm. Either all there is is nature. We're here by accident. We're here, we're just, we're here because of forces of nature, blind forces of nature. We're here because of of volcanoes. We're here because of storms. We're here because of the Big Bang. We're just here by accident. Storm. See? And when you die, you're going to go to dust. And when the sun goes out, there won't even be anyone around to remember anything that anyone's done, which means in the end, whether you're a cruel person or a loving person makes no difference at all. So either that's the case, all we have is storm, or if Jesus is who he said he is, if he's Lord of the storm, then there's safety then there's meaning in life. Huh? See, if there's just a storm, nothing means anything. But if Jesus is real and he is who he said he is, then there's all the meaning and all the hope and all the security you could possibly want, but then you lose control <laughs> because then you have to pull, throw everything over and give everything to him. And so the misfit puts it perfectly when he says, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing to do but throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, then there's nothing to do but enjoy the few minutes you have left by killing someone 
or burning down his house or doing some other kind of meanness and there's hardly no pleasure in that. And that's the only two things there are to do. And if you think that Flannery O'Connor is sort of drawing the options a little too starkly and too, uh, too strongly, well, go argue with her. Go read her fiction and you'll lose the argument. Jesus, who is this? One with infinite power, which pushes us to the break. So Jesus' power is real time power, real world power. Secondly, Jesus' power is infinite power. But thirdly, that leads to this, this fact, that Jesus' power is unmanageable power. Oh, yes, it is. Can I show you one of the comedic elements in this uh, passage? Look at the emotional life of the disciples. Before Jesus calms the storm, they're scared. They're so scared. Before Jesus calms the storm, they're scared. But after Jesus calms the storm, of course, they're more scared. <laughs> you see, they're, they're terrified. It gets worse. Why? Here's why. The picture of Jesus being aroused by these men, the picture of Jesus asleep in the storm, it says the boat was nearly swamped. Literally, it says the boat was almost full. And see, because of all the, the, the water coming into the boat, they were like good sailors were trying to bail, but they, they couldn't bail fast enough to get the water out, and they knew they were just seconds from being totally filled, and they were going to die. So notice it says in verse 37, Jesus was asleep, so they wake him up, and they say, you don't care. We're dying, and you don't care. Now, any single person who's ever tried to live a life of faith in this world, boy, this has got to go to your heart. Because everybody who's ever tried to live a life of faith in this world has felt like this sometime. You feel like you're sinking, everything's going wrong, and God's asleep. Or he just doesn't seem to be around, he doesn't seem to be aware. So they wake him up and they basically say, you have gone asleep on us in our hour of greatest need. You're asleep in our hour of greatest need. And you don't care. <laughs> because if you loved us, you wouldn't be letting us go through this. If you loved us, we wouldn't be going through storms. If you loved us, we wouldn't be uh, about to sink. Our boat wouldn't be sinking. If you loved us, you would not be letting us go through deadly peril. And what does he do? He calms the storm, but then he turns around, and what does he say? Well, I can understand how you felt. Oh, no. <laughs> what does he say? Why were you afraid? What do you mean, they say, why were we afraid? We were afraid you didn't love us, because if you love us, you wouldn't let these things go, go happen to us. And Jesus says, well, guess what? Your premise is wrong. You should have known better. I do allow people who I love to go through storms. I can love somebody and still let them go through a storm. You had no right to panic. Now, in other words, you want to know why they're so scared? Because Jesus is as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm has got infinite power. You can't control that. Jesus has infinitely more power, but you can't control that either. So you say, well, what's the difference? There's a huge difference. The storm doesn't love you. And there's your only two alternatives. The misfit was right. You know, he said, oh, there's no Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. Fine. Do you realize you are at the mercy of the storm? You say, what do you mean? It's not always storming. Yes, it is. Because nature is going to wear you down. It's going to destroy you. If, you're, if you live a long time, eventually it'll just wear you down. Your body's going to give out. You're going to die. Nature's going to wear you down. 
And maybe it'll happen sooner than old age. Maybe it'll happen through an earthquake. Maybe it'll happen through a fire. Maybe it'll happen through, through something else that happens. I mean, nature is violent, and nature is overwhelming, and it's unmanageable power, and it's going to get you. But you say, well, all right, but if I go to Jesus who's got this power, I, he's not under my control either. He lets things happen that we don't understand. He doesn't do things according to plan. He doesn't do things according to a way that makes sense to me. Jesus says, I'm God. And if I'm God, and if I have the power to do this, then I've got to be great enough to have some, some reasons to let you go through things that you can't understand. So my power is unmanageable. You say, well, what's the difference? All the difference in the world, because Jesus' unmanageable power, Jesus' unmanageable power is filled with love for you. That's the difference. So where are you going to go? If you knew that Jesus Christ loved you, this is what he's saying to his disciples, if you really knew I loved you, you could have been calm during that storm. It could have been stormy out here, you could have been calm in here. If you really knew I loved you, I do. See, your premise is wrong, that if you loved us, you wouldn't let bad things happen to us. Sorry, I can love somebody and still let bad things happen to them because I'm God, because I know better than you. Because, of course, if you have a God great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who is great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to have reasons to allow you to suffer that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Elizabeth Elliot put it beautifully in her very brief two sentences. She says, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Did you hear that? Storm. If you're at the mercy of this storm, it's unmanageable power, but it doesn't love you. The only place it's safe is in the will of God. But the will of God, the arms of God, the will of God is necessarily, because it's God and you're not, it's necessarily infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he is up to. His power, of course, is unmanageable. He's not safe, but he's good. Jesus is saying, I can let people go through things even though I love you. And if you knew I loved you, you'd be able to go through those things. If you were totally sure of my love, you could be calm even when it was stormy outside. You had no right to panic. Well, now, where does this bring us? Where does this lead us? Uh, I think when I look at what the, how the disciples responded, I think something unusual happens this week. The disciples are always screwing up. And almost always, when you see them screw up, you laugh. You say, you know... What jerks. But I don't know that we feel that way this week, do we? I mean, don't, aren't we sympathetic? There's a storm. Jesus acts like he's not going to wake up. They're sinking. And they freak out. And they say, I, I just don't think you love us. And he wakes up and he says, well, if you knew I loved you then, you, then you would have been able to go through the storm. And you say, well, I, I don't know. You know, that's really, really hard. I don't think I can handle storms like that either. But we have got something that they didn't have yet. We have got a resource that they didn't have yet. We have a resource now that will enable you to have calm inside no matter what storms are like outside so that you can go through storms. What is that resource? Here. I think the secret to the meaning of this passage, 
The secret of what Mark is trying to get across to us in this passage lies in the fact that Mark has deliberately laid out this account, this incident, using language that is identical, almost identical, and certainly parallel, to the language of the famous account of Jonah in the boat in the storm in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah chapter 1. If you compare these two, it's amazing. Both Jesus and Jonah are out on the sea in a boat. And both Jesus and Jonah's boats are overtaken by a storm. And the the description of the storm is almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the storm. Keep on going. Fourth, the sailors come to the sleeper and they say we're perishing. And they even use the very same Greek word, apolemi. So they're out in a boat. They're in a storm in a boat. They're asleep in a boat, both of them. The sailors come and they say, we're about to perish, and rebuke them and say, do something. And in both cases, fifth, there's a miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calmed. And sixth, in both stories, the last thing we read is the sailors were even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. So what we have here is almost identical story. Oh, yeah, there's just one difference, isn't there? Do you remember what that one difference is? There's one little difference between the story of Jesus in the storm and the story of Jonah in the storm because here's the difference. Jonah, in the midst of the storm, says to the sailors, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And they throw him in. Yeah, you say, well, that's different. That that didn't happen here, right? That's the one difference between the two stories. Or is it? I think Mark is trying to get across the fact that the stories aren't actually different at all. Not when you stand back a little bit. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus Christ says, I am the true Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here, and he's referring to himself. I am the true Jonah. What does he mean by that? Ah, this is what he means. He means this. He calmed the storm and the wind and the waves and saved his disciples. But Jesus says that someday he's going to calm all storms. He's going to still all waves. He's going to destroy destruction. He's going to break brokenness. He's going to kill death. All storms are going to be gone. huh? He's going to still all storms for us. For us. That's what he promises. That's what the kingdom of God means. Well, how can he do that? Here's how he can do that. He can only do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm. He was thrown under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus Christ was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink you and me. You know, we're, we're talking about this problem or that problem. There's only one storm that can really sink you, and that is what you owe because of your wrongdoing. And Jesus Christ turned his prow, as it were, into the ultimate storm of eternal justice, And he bowed his head and he went right into it for our sake. And he didn't flinch and he was demolished and he paid for our sins on the cross. And if you, and to the degree that seeing him do that, seeing him bow his head into the ultimate storm for you and for me, to the degree that that's burned into the center of your being, to that degree you will know he cares. And you'll never say, oh Lord, don't you care? Because you'll know he does. And if you know that he did not abandon you in that storm, that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would ever abandon you in these little storms, these infinitely smaller storms we're going through right now? To the degree you see 
that he was the true Jonah, that he was thrown into the ultimate storm for you and me. To that degree, you can sing that little, that, those lines of John Newton. His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle. Then he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. You know what Jesus is saying here? You and I tend to go to him and say, Teacher, don't you know that we're dying? You've fallen asleep in our hour of greatest need. And you know what Jesus is saying? Look, I only, you only think I've fallen asleep, but let me tell you, you fell asleep on me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, my disciples, the human race, that's where you fell asleep on me in the hour of my greatest need. You've been asleep on me all your life. He could say that to every single one of us in this room. You really have gone to sleep on me, but I've loved you anyway. My power is infinite. My power is unmanageable, but it's completely, completely at your service. It cost me infinitely to exercise my power in such a way that someday I'm going to be able to still all storms and give you a new heavens and new earth. If you see that and you bring that in the very center of your being, you will know he loves you. You will know he cares. And then you will have the calm, no matter how, what it looks like outside, to handle anything in life. Just a couple of very, very, very uh, practical points. You know where Jesus says, why do you still have no faith? There's another way to, uh, there is a, actually another way to translate that. You could translate that, where is your faith? And I love that way of thinking about it. Most of us tend to think faith is something you just get or you just have. I've had people say, I wish I had your faith. Here's Jesus saying, you notice what he's saying? He says, where is your faith? He says, I've been giving you enough evidence of my love and my power that you didn't have to freak out. Where is your faith? Get it out. It ought to be here. Get out the knowledge you've got. Exercise it. Think, think, he's saying. You don't have to panic. You never have to panic if you think. See, faith isn't this mysterious thing that just happens to you. You know, he says, I've given you plenty of evidence. And of course, at this point, the disciples don't have anything like the knowledge that we have. And what he's saying is, get out what you've got and you can handle, with my help, the storms of life. And if you do, you'll be able to sing what we often sing at Redeemer, not particularly tonight, but we will again. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never No, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for providing us a vision of Jesus' power. But thank you for also showing us that he's the true Jonah, that the power that we really needed for him to exercise was the power to be weak on the cross, to die for us. And we ask now that you would enable us to see him doing that for us, so that we could have his power in our lives to face the storms that are in front of us. And I thank you that, uh, that we have this available, and I ask that you would uh, take and comfort and uh, empower us with this knowledge, for we ask it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us full, his craft and Now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866 8999 
or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following is the program called Questions from the Bible. Hello, listeners. This is Susan Holtgrew, and I will be your host for our new program titled Questions from the Bible. The Bible often poses questions for us to think about. Let us take a look at a few of these examples. In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 6, God asks Cain, who was angry with God for not accepting his offering, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? In Psalm, chapter 139, verse 7, David asks, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the prophet Habakkuk, asks in chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. There are many instances in the Bible where Jesus asked questions from those whom he was teaching or talking to. He asks his disciples, What do others call me? Or, You of little faith, why do you doubt? It is recorded that Jesus had asked over 150 questions during his three-year ministry. However, these, the questions are not asked because he does not know the answers, for God knows all things. But instead, God asks us these questions that we may realize what we did and reflect on our sins. It shows that he created all of us differently and respects our individual thoughts and differences. The questions that were asked from God to the people of the Bible held different meanings for everyone. We planned this program because we wanted to study these various questions in their different forms to understand the spiritual meanings behind them. This program will use the book Jesus Code, written by O.S. Hawkins, as a foundational guide. Today, for our first question of the Bible broadcast, we will study the first question ever asked in the Bible. Do you know what the first question is and who asked it? In Genesis chapter 3, Satan asks the very first question of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells how God created all things in the world. He created Adam, the first man, in the Garden of Eden and gave him authority to rule over all things on this world. With one exception, to never eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Garden was a place with no suffering and no sorrow. However, life in this perfect peaceful paradise was torn apart in Genesis chapter 3. One simple question that started it all, the question asked from Satan. In verse 1, Satan approached Eve and asked, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This question was posed as a truth, but it was actually a lie. 
God said for them to eat all the fruit of the garden except for the fruit from that one tree. However, Satan twisted the truth and made Eve doubt God's words. Satan knew how placing doubt in a person's mind could have fatal consequences. Satan did not tell Eve to eat the fruit from the tree and disobey God. He instead planted doubt in her mind. When Satan asked that question, Eve should have remembered God's command and obeyed. However, she relies on her own understanding in answering the question. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan uses Eve's answer to lie more, and place even more doubt in God's words. In chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, Satan says, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve sinned by listening to Satan's lies about God's words. This is why, even to this day, we all live under this sin committed by Adam and Eve. Because of this sin, we must all face death and cannot escape judgment after we die. Satan always lies to us and tries to make us doubt God's word to disobey him. Satan also tested Jesus, God's son, in the same way. When Jesus was in the desert, what was the first thing that Satan said to Jesus? He said, if you really are the son of God, command the rocks to turn into bread. Matthew chapter 4 tells us Jesus fasted in the desert and was tested by Satan. At the end of chapter 3, it shows how Jesus was baptized by John. Let us read chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God refers to Jesus as my beloved Son. However, Satan says, If you really are the Son of God, then do as I say. Satan challenges Jesus, saying he must do these things to prove he is the Son of God. Genesis chapter 2 says God commanded Adam to not eat from the tree of knowledge. However, in chapter 3, Satan twists this around with his lies and makes him doubt. He also does this in Matthew, twisting the words, My beloved Son, to, If you really are the Son of God. Satan will always try to test us when God specifically commands us to do something. He will ask, did God really say it in that way to you? Adam was the first to fail at this test. However, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was victorious. He used God's truths to fight Satan's lies. Those of us who follow Jesus must also be like him, holding firm to God's word. When we hold on to his words and obey, it allows us to love our Lord even more as we submit to God. This concludes the first broadcast of Questions from the Bible. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to our next broadcast 
where we will explore more questions from the Bible.
When Peter said to Ananias, Why had Satan filled his heart? The word fill in Hebrew is plero-o, meaning to fill, to replenish, or to be filled with. The word plero-o is used again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to plero-o with the Holy Spirit. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The believer who ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit was instead filled with Satan and so deceived and tested the Holy Spirit by lying to God. Of course, Satan might not have told Ananias to lie, but Satan might have filled his heart with greed that led to a decrease in how much he offered to the apostles, and that gave him a justified reason to be filled with false pride. Ananias decided to follow the voice of Satan rather than the voice of the Holy Spirit. Through the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there is something we as Christians should think about, that God still judges sin even in the era of grace, and judgment starts in God's house. But what is the purpose of his judgment? What did God want to tell the early church by judging Ananias and Sapphira? It is that we ought to revere God. Acts chapter 5, verse 5 says that all those who heard the incident of Ananias feared greatly. And Acts chapter 5, verse 11 says the whole church and those who heard the incident of Sapphira were in great fear. I believe today's believers must recover and retain the same reverence toward God as we read the passage about Ananias and Sapphira. It is not the fear of dying that we should recover and retain, but the fear or reverence of not being holy, not following his words towards being holy and righteous. We have lost the fear and reverence towards God because we place too much emphasis on his grace towards us. There is corruption in the church, those deceiving and testing the Holy Spirit, and those lying to God and his people. Let us turn back to him now. Let us abandon Satan's temptations and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled also means to be in control. We should control our actions by obeying the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira did not die because of the stolen offering. They died because they tried to deceive and test him. This is a warning that God gives Christians to fear and revere Him and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what are we full of today? Let us take time today to examine ourselves. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see you all again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. in his hand who has numbered every grain of sand kings and nations tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice behold a 
come let us adore him behold our king nothing can compare come let us adore 